2 Samuel chapter 5, reading from verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king and reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say, the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Okay, we're continuing um, with 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittatite. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittatite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, 
The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm not sure how you feel after that reading. Perhaps upset, upset that God would put a good man to death who sought to do a good thing for his ark. Perhaps you you feel angered towards God about the curse that was put onto this daughter of Saul, Michal, finding her barren because she despised her husband dancing in his underwear in front of his whole nation. You know, it seems a little bit unfair, doesn't it, as you read that? But, you know, I've been reading my Bible for a long time, and I've come to learn this. When I get upset by what I find in the Bible, or actually even better, when I get angered by what I find in the Bible, or just outright confused, then I should get excited because God has something to teach me. And I would suggest that God has something really profound to teach us tonight about who he is as a holy God, a very different, glorious God, about how he's so faithful, so good and true to his promises, his promises to bless as well as his promises to curse, about him as a a God whom we can trust, rely on, and bank our future on. Tonight we're going to go through a big part of 1 and 2 Samuel. We're going to go through six chapters of 2 Samuel from chapter 1 to 6, but it's all summed up under this key idea, God enthrones his king in Zion. So God enthrones his king in Zion. We're going to explore how 
God brings David to, to this point of uh, being, being anointed as this king over his people. This is a high point in David's life. If you're new or visiting with us, we're in a series looking at the life of this man, David, from the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. David lived 400 years after Moses had taken Israel out of Egypt. Joshua had led them into the promised land. David was the second king of Israel. He lived a thousand years before Jesus. He was King Jesus' great-great-grandfather. In this journey through David's uh, anointing, his enthronement in Zion, we're going to see what a good God it is that we worship, what a holy God, a different God that it is that we worship, and how we can trust our lives and our future to him and how we can bank ourselves on his promises. We're going to see that God wants to enthrone his king, but he also wants a king who is willing to enthrone him, God, at the center of his life, at the center of all of his people's lives. And we're going to see what it is that God likes in us, what it is that God seeks in us. So open up your Bibles. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and I want to tell you some of the stories of David's journey towards the kingship in Zion, that is Jerusalem. So 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to start with God enthroning his king in Zion. As we've traveled through the book of 1 Samuel, I wonder how you would sum up this man, David. Perhaps a little conflicted, a little complex, definitely chosen, definitely favored by God. Remember the scriptures taught us that he was a man after God's own heart, not necessarily meaning that he was a man whose heart always beat beat after God's but that he was a man of God's choosing. And if there's one thing that can be said of David, it's that he was blameless in regards to the demise of Saul and his family and in his rise to the kingship. And we see that very clearly in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. So Saul, David's great enemy, was put to death. The Philistine army had slain Saul and his three sons on a place called Mount Gilboa. One of those sons was David's dear, dear friend, Jonathan. And a war-torn messenger comes running to David as he's in his uh, hideout in a place called Ziklag. He runs to him and he has this message, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. How do you expect David to respond when his arch enemy, this man who has made his life a living hell for 15 years and has chased him all around Israel, trying to put him to death, how do you expect him to respond when he hears this news? High five for the messenger, you know, crack open a wineskin and celebrate with all of his friends that his enemy's dead. No, verse 11. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes. They tore them. They mourned, wept, and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. I see in David a model of loving your enemies of doing good to those who mistreat you, of honouring others in death and leaving judgment up to God. 
Well, this messenger gets a real surprise. David commands that he is to be put to death. Not because David doesn't like the message, but because this messenger, by his own words, said that he was the one who had killed Saul. He'd taken the crown off Saul's head, the band off his arm, and brought it to David. And David said, your own mouth testified against you when you declared, I killed the Lord's anointed. So he has that messenger put to death, and then he writes a lament song, commands all Israel to sing it, and we're shown this amazing model of honoring his enemy even in death. So King Saul is gone, and the new king, David, is on the rise. What kind of king is he going to be? Chapter 2, verse 1 gives us a hint. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? If you remember, King Saul had been rejected from the kingship because he refused to listen to God's voice. Here is a new king listening to God's voice, inquiring of God. And God says, yes, go up, go up to Judah. And there he is anointed as the king over the tribe of Judah, over his people, the southern tribe of Judah. He takes the kingship, but whenever there's a bit of a leadership scuffle, what happens in human history? It still happens today. Military leaders, people of significance and power, rise to the fore. And two of those are a man called Abner, son of Ner, who was an Israelite army commander, and Joab, son of Zeruiah, who was the commander of the, Judah, of the clan of Judah. So Abner, this man from Israel, the 11 tribes of the northern region of Israel, he goes and finds one of Saul's remaining sons. He finds a guy called Ish-bosheth. What a name. Don't name your kids that. Ish-bosheth. And Ish-bosheth is anointed as king at the age of 40. But Abner is the real power player underneath. And so Abner decides that they should go to war against Joab and his troops. Abner and Joab go at the war, and we're given a report in verse 17 of chapter 2. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. In the course of the battle, Abner kills Joab's youngest brother. Job's youngest brother was a real fleet-footed soldier. He was chasing after Abner. And Abner was saying, turn back, Asahel was his name. Turn back, Asahel. Turn back or I'll have to kill you. And he kept chasing, kept chasing. Gets a little bit gruesome here. Actually, the, the whole thing is a little bit MA15+. plus. So just bear with us. Abner takes his spear, rams it through Asahel, goes through his stomach, out his back. And then when Joab and the other soldiers get to that point, the whole battle is called off. The battle ends, but across Israel and throughout Judah, the battle between the house of David continues to rage for a long time. And we're given a real summary, an overarching sort of summary verse of all of these chapters in chapter 3, verse 1. Read it with me. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So David is innocent in regards to this rise to power. God is blessing him. He is rising. Saul's house is demising. But there's one area that David seems to be compromising in, and it's there in those next verses of chapter 3. 
if you read through that list, you'll see that David is taking more and more wives and having more and more sons. He's a bit of a playboy, but he is pure in regards to his relationship with, uh, with Saul and their family. Well, in the course of time, Abner, that military leader of the Israelite tribes, he, he defects away from Saul's son, Ishbosheth. And he decides to take the Israelites with him. And it becomes common, we, we discover that it's actually become common knowledge that David is really this man of God's choosing. We read it in the words of chapter 317. Abner's conferring with the elders of Israel, and he said to them, For some time now you have wanted to make David your king. Now go on and do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David I will rescue my people Israel, and from the hand of the Philistines, and from the hand of all their enemies. So we can see that David, it was known that he was God's choice for the role. It was becoming commonly accepted around all of Israel that actually David's the man. David is the one to to become our next king. But things get messy and things get complicated when people sniff power. So over the next few chapters, Joab avenges his brother and he murders Abner, this leader of the Israelite tribes. He too stabs him through the stomach and he falls down and dies. David is innocent of all of this. Uh, but then after that, Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, if you remember him, well, he gets murdered while he's sleeping in his own tent by two of his best military commanders. They come and ram a spear through him and then chop off his head. Sorry, it's just completely gruesome. I'm, I'm sorry, but this is, this is what's recorded here. They take the head over to David and they report, here is the head of your enemy from Saul's family. Well, David, true to form, reminds them of what happened to the last messenger who thought they'd brought good news when one, of David's, uh, when one of Saul's family had died. He commands that these two evil men, he says to them, when the last man came thinking he brought me good news, I put him to death. How much more you who have murdered an innocent man while he slept deserve to be rid of the earth? Then he cuts these men's hands and feet off and hangs up their body in public view of everyone to say this is what will happen to anyone who lays their hands on the family of Saul. It's gruesome, it's messy, it's complicated, but it reminds me that God is at work in the midst of our mess. God is still bringing about his good purposes as people wrangle for power, position, authority. God is still going to bring his king to the throne in Zion. And that's when we arrive at that first reading that Ben brought to us tonight in chapter 5, when all of Israel decide to come to David and make him their king. I marvel at David's grace, at his forgiveness, at his kindness towards the Israelites, because they come to him and say, you know what, David, um, we're really sorry about the last 15 years. Um, you know, sorry for chasing you all over Israel. Um, sorry for trying to kill you multiple times. Um, we recognize that we're all from the same family. And so they say to him, verse 2, In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us in Israel in military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. And David accepts. He forgives them. 
he offers peace to them because he knows that he can swallow that wrong for the sake of the unity of all God's people. He makes a covenant with them and unites all of Israel under his rule as the king. But you know, do you know when God made that promise to David that you will shepherd my people Israel? At least 20 years earlier. So for 20 years, David has lived with the uncertainty of how this is going to come about. God made a promise and he was running and hiding in caves. People were trying to kill him, but God promises always come through. I'm reminded that there is no expiry date on the promises of God. And you've got to believe that, friends. You've got to believe that God will come through on the things he has promised. He will deliver and he will come through. You can bank all of your life, all of your trust on him and his word. And we see that even more clearly in the next encounter when David goes to take for himself a fortress in the centre of his new united Israel. He goes to lay claim to the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was this strong fortress city in the middle of between Judah and the northern tribes of Israel. It was perfectly situated, but it was impenetrable. The Jebusites were so brazen, so bold in their own assertions of their defences and their their safety in this city, that they said to David, you know what, David, we could keep you up with our eyes closed. We could defend against you with our, our hands behind our backs. But God had made a promise to a man called Abraham 800 years earlier. And he'd said to Abraham, you are going to inherit this land that you are now standing on a land that belongs to the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, all these ites, ites, ites. You know you hear them when you read the Old Testament. The last of those ites was the Jebusites. And it took a long time. But today was the day that God would come through on that promise and rid the land of these Jebusites and give the land to his people. So David makes a move of, of cunning military strategy and he sends his soldiers through the water shaft of this impenetrable city. They rush through the water shaft, they conquer the city, and David lays claim to it. In verse 7 it says, David captured Fortress Zion, which is the city of David. Verse 9, he took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the name means city of peace which is ironic, isn't it? Because there's no 11 acres of real estate that has had more wars and battles fought over it than the city of Jerusalem. But it was the perfect place for a city of peace, a place of unity for all of God's people. And this is the first time in the Bible that it gets called Zion. Zion becomes a a sort of synonym for Jerusalem, for the Temple Mountain, for, in fact, all of the Jerusalem city and And even as the Bible progresses, Zion becomes this name that's so significant, it becomes the center of where God will bring about his new heavens, new earth, the the consummated heavens and earth in the new creation. Zion matters to God. And so God enthrones David in Zion. This is a wonderful high point in our Old Testament, friends, as David takes the throne. But the great thing about King David is that 
he's not just a king whom God enthrones, but he's a king who wants to enthrone his God. He is a king who wants to put God at the center of his people. And that's where we get to this exciting but somewhat confusing bringing of the ark, bringing of the presence of God into the city of Jerusalem. David wants to be a man who enthrones God at the center of his people. So he calls together all his military leaders, his 30,000 of his best soldiers. All of Israel is there, and they descend on this town called Bala. Uh, Kiriath-Jerim is another name given to it throughout the Bible. And they, they come to this place, and it was bursting at the seams this day. Everyone was there. There was excitement. It was fun. It was loud. It was religious. It was great to be a part of. This was the, the jubilee moment of Israelite of Israelite history, the ark was going to get carried up into Jerusalem. And Philistine style, it was placed on an ark carried by two oxen. And the ark was going up. And David was there dancing with excitement before the ark. And everything was great until uh, they got to this like, guy's farm, Nacon's farm. And, and things went a bit wrong. There was, there was a sort of a bit of a shuffle around and, and the cart rocked. And, and then Uzzah did something and stretched out and, and all of a sudden he was down the f- ground twitching and vibrating and still. And David, David was terrified. He was outraged. How could a good God put a guy like Uzzah who was just trying to offer a helping hand to his falling ark, how could he, how could he put him to death? And, and, and we might find ourselves feeling like David, just outraged at who this God is, terrified of what he's like, until we recognize who it is that's represented in that ark. Take a look at chapter 6, verse 2. David and all his men have gone to Bala in Judah to bring up the ark, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Uzzah's irreverent act of holding out and stabilizing this falling ark surmounted to a presumption to touch the presence of the living God. And David and Uzzah had fallen into a trap that you and I are just all too prone to fall into as well. They had become comfortable, they had become familiar with the presence of our holy God. They were too comfortable, too too commonplace with who God was, and it meant that Uzzah fell down dead. But it wasn't just that. It was also that David should have known better because Moses had given very clear commands about how this ark was to be transported. Uh, It was to be transported by the Levites who were to cover it. It was to be carried on long poles on their shoulders, No one was to touch. If you could sum up what God had said in his law through Moses, it was basically when it came to the ark, no look, no touch, no cart. They were three rules. And he broke two of them and he fell down dead. David should have known. As the king of God's people, it was his job to write a copy of God's law and have it read to him regularly. He should have known, but he became terrified of God that day. Uh, He was frightened of the presence of God, and so he sent that ark 
to this very kind-hearted, good-willed man, Obed-Edom, and said, you know, it's just killed someone, but do you mind having it in your house for a while? Uh, So he has the Ark of the Presence in his house. And David is terrified until he realizes that God, with his presence, intends still to bless, not to curse, as was being experienced by Obed-Edom's house. Things were going awesome. They were being blessed in everything that they touched. And so once more, David attempts to bring up the ark into the presence, uh, bring out the presence of God into the place of God's people in Zion. So once again, he sets out. This time he gets it right. Verse, uh, verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark, they've got it right, they've got it on their shoulders, had taken six steps, he stopped everyone, offered a sacrifice. Let's atone for ourselves. Let's make sure we're all good here. And then they carry up the ark with rejoicing, with music. And look at how David celebrated before the ark. Here it is, verse 14. Wearing a linen ephod. There's just a theological, um, theological background for the linen shirts that all your pastors wear here at church. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And I wonder if that's a challenge to you that David, in the presence of God, got so excited. It brought out his rawest, deepest emotions. He was exuberant in the presence of God. I remember when it happened for me. I, a bit like Eric, grew up in a church uh, as a young Anglican boy, and I used to worship God with the defensive arms folded position. Occasionally, when I was getting excited, uh, Relaxed to the casual hands in pockets. And, uh, and then I went to a Coldplay concert. And I'm standing on my seat, arms held high in praise of Chris Martin. <laughs> and I just realized, Jesus deserves better than this. Jesus deserves better than Chris Martin. I don't know what it's going to look like for you. But does the presence of God capture your heart, friends? Is it the thing that gets you most excited? It, it, in contrast to maybe what you might have been screaming at the television last night as you watched the footy or, or what might get your heart going in the, the recent political debates, what, is the kingdom of God the thing central at the core of your being that drives you, the passion that gets you up in the morning, that, that gets you here to church and drives you out in the week to serve King Jesus? Is that the thing that most moves your heart? If it moves your heart, friends, maybe... Let it move your soul in worship of God. It doesn't have to be hands in the air, but just let it excite you. Let the kingdom of God drive you. Let his presence be the thing that inspires you, for he is present amongst us, friends. It is Pentecost Sunday. We celebrate that God is present here with his people. This is the most powerful experience of the presence of God you should have throughout your week as you come with all of God's spirit-filled people to read his word, to think about his teaching, to walk in his ways. So God is here amongst us. Does it get you excited? David danced with all his might. He became undignified even before God. But in the midst of all of that, there were people who looked down on him. He became disdained in the eyes of Michal, his wife. And there's a few clues to why Michal looked down on David so much. Uh, She despised him as he arrived back at his house at the end of this great day of enthroning God in his presence. 
He arrived home to his wife, and there she was, not a hair out of place, not a crease in her skirt, because she hadn't been celebrating. She'd just been looking down on this husband of hers, dancing before the presence of God. But there's clues to her attitude. It comes because three times she's referred to as Michal, daughter of Saul. And so her bad attitude towards God is a reflection of the bad father that she had and his attitude. And the barrenness that she would experience is a reflection of God's commitment to put an end to the line of Saul. There were to be no more children in the line of Saul. And to raise up the family line of David. And so, friends, as we get to this end point of God enthroning his king in Zion, we see that God is a God who is very true to his promises and will come through to exalt his king. In fact, he has exalted King Jesus. Psalm 2 is a wonderful psalm about God, the God enthroned in heaven, exalting his king in Zion. That king was David. Ultimately, we know it's King Jesus, great David's greatest son. God has exalted his king in Zion. Have you exalted King Jesus in your heart? Have you enthroned him in your heart? Does he sit at the center of who you are? Does he drive your passions and pursuits in your life? Have you enthroned him over all of who you are? Psalm 2 gives us two very simple things we can do in light of who God is, who we've seen him and who he's been revealed to us today. Psalm 2 commands us to do two things. It says, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice before your God with trembling. Let your heart be glad in his presence. Remember that he is a holy and awesome God. And I'm going to pray that God would help us be a people who rejoice before our great God with trembling to close. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are the God who enthrones your king in Zion. You enthrone David on his throne in Jerusalem. And we think of King Jesus, who himself came into Jerusalem just as was prophesied, gentle, riding on a donkey, coming in to the praises of your people. He was enthroned enthroned on a cross and given a crown of thorns, yet because he humbled himself, Lord, you exalted him to the highest place and you have given him the name above every name, that at his name every knee should bow, tongue confess that he is Lord. And so, God, just as you have enthroned Jesus, been true to your promises, come through as the Holy One of Israel, we pray that we would enthrone Jesus in our life by rejoicing before him with trembling in our hearts. God, let us delight in King Jesus. Let us pursue his kingdom with all of our lives and let us be a people who experience his presence and rejoice with trembling. Amen.